Setting up a network at home can devolve into a stream of choice words while pulling out your hair. A sudden global shift to remote and hybrid work can lead to the same frustration for a number of reasons that may or may not include setting up a router. Morgan Teachworth, the VP of Engineering and Supply Chain at Cisco Meraki, suggests that his company was ideally positioned to support a hybrid workflow. A lot of us have set up a home router and you know the first time that you do it, even the simplest one you buy at a big box store off the shelf, you're typing in IP addresses, you're navigating menus, it's terrible. So Meraki took the simplicity that we had for like an IT pro at the office and said, well, if you're gonna just drop it on somebody at home and ask them to set it up, it's gotta be plug and play. You can't ask everybody to waste their time trying to get it set up. And we were ready for that. And so that's been a big portion of setting up hybrid work is not only it has to work, but it has to be simple to continue to operate, to maintain, to set up, to replace, or you're going to have downtime and people aren't going to have access to what they need. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Morgan shares the vantage point, the benefit of Cisco Meraki within the greater umbrella of Cisco. Additionally, he describes his unique position within the company that bridges the areas of engineering and supply chain. Morgan deepens the conversation as he chats about the need to make sure networks are available for everyone. Enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest. He is the VP of Engineering and Supply Chain at Cisco Meraki, Morgan Teachworth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here today. All right. For those who do not know, because Cisco is a huge company, Meraki is just one of the product lines. Give us an idea. Tell us what exactly is Cisco Meraki. All right. So Cisco Meraki is a BU in the network experiences portion of Cisco. Uh, that doesn't mean any more to you than just saying it's Cisco Meraki. But, you know, in short, Meraki was a startup in networking specifically that was acquired by Cisco in 2012. And since then, we've operated independently inside of the Cisco organization to grow a network business. So switches, access points, uh, routers, that's where we started and we've since expanded into cameras, IoT sensors, and devices like that. We operate as a unit, as a true independent BU, and try and just you know, keep the whole solution as the whole solution. You, met, you know, mentioned a lot of like hardware components. I know Cisco does also make other hardware components for networking. What is the specialty and what's the advantage of building, building as your own business unit? Yeah. So you know, Cisco and other companies like Cisco are humongous. They're really big and they have really broad product lines. And the challenge that Meraki saw was that when a customer came to try and build their entire infrastructure solution, they kind of went piece by piece. And in many ways, it felt like they were working with different companies. Even though they were all part of Cisco, it was different relationships different, even different sales teams, that kind of thing. And so, you know, Meraki's stick at the beginning was we're going to close the loop. We're going to offer as many things as possible on one management panel, one single pane of glass, one support team, one license, one sales interface. And we were really successful with that model. 
that has kept us independent because every time that you think about breaking that model by you know trying to tell them hey we want you to build a bigger solution different building blocks different management planes you say well wait a minute who are we we are the everybody on a single pane of glass offering how does this make sense and so we've been running that independent play for a long time now that's not to say that our customers aren't also Cisco's customers and using big portions of their solution, we bring in a ton of that, but we always try and do it where we bring in a technology and make it available through our regular management plan. So it becomes an extension of us. And I think probably half of our offering today is something that we've borrowed from the bigger organization and made our own. But from a customer's point of view, like it's kind of a Meraki first interface. And that's that's fantastic experience for them. That's why we keep operating that way. No, exactly. And for, you know, our audience who's not as familiar with this, my I do have a little bit of background in networking as well. And I remember selling networking solutions. And inevitably, there would be someone who's in charge of overseeing the operation that they would ask for like, hey, does this integrate? And I would always, you know, on the sales side, I'd be like, oh, well, we have APIs. They'd be like, ugh, now I have to build some type of integration. It might not work with what I'm currently using. I might have to add a UI layer. So there's always a little bit of complexity, like as you suggested, by piecemealing these things together. It does make sense to have a nice single solution, everything full stack, and of course, an interface that allows it to be managed. Now, one of the things about Meraki that you guys talk about on your website, which of course, all of us are experiencing now, is this idea of remote workforce, hybrid work workforce. You know, for a lot of our listeners that are maybe more junior developers or people who have not worked at big organizations yet, you know, missions like one of these types of companies, we're born in the cloud, we have laptops, we don't have network requirements, like we just use, we just use, uh, (laughs) you know, we just connect to whatever public internet we have, Spectrum, Comcast, whatever cable company we use, and we go use cloud services and we communicate over chat tools. I think half of our listeners know this problem, half of them don't, but I'd love for you to explain, like, why do you need these types of solutions for workforce? Yeah, it all, it all comes back to security, data security, and the way that companies have operated is like, you know, these just rings of security. What's your absolute most precious stuff is in your, you know, your core network. It's on your own servers. It's protected. You can only access it from the office. The next ring is, you know, what people are using in the office. And, and this has all been getting really fuzzy over time with cloud storage, with cloud services and with apps. It used to be when people would go home or they'd go out to work in a coffee shop, you wouldn't even give them access to the crown jewels of what you were doing or even some of the tools, some of the more expensive software suites, like you'd have to be on site to be able to use it. When everybody went home to work, it basically was, well, we can either give them access or we can get not get work done. So it truly was an emergency in hybrid work. And now you've got to have this seamless experience where everything that's available to you at the office is available to you at home, is available to you while you're on the road. And that is a, a true combination. Most people don't even think about what are they working on that's in the cloud or in a company server or peer-to-peer, but it, it all has to work. That's the first challenge. It just has to work. But behind that, for the the guy managing the IT network, you know, for the whole team that manages that, like it has to be completely secured. And like it's the home user, you don't think about the security of it at all. No, we just want we just want a machine that works. We don't care about all that stuff. Yeah. 
that has to disappear and it has to be simple. And, you know, not only does it have to be simple to use, but it has to be simple to set up. I mean, you can imagine, you know, there are a lot of different roles in any company, tech company or not. Like there are a lot of different roles and there are a lot of different comfort levels with setting things up. A lot of us have set up a home router and, you know, the first time that you do it, even the simplest one you buy at a big box store off the shelf, like you're typing in IP addresses, you're navigating menus, it's terrible. So Meraki took the simplicity that you had, we had for an IT pro at the office and said, well, if you're going to just drop it on somebody at home and ask them to set it up, it's got to be plug and play. You can't ask everybody to waste their time, like trying to get it set up. And that, we were ready for that. And so that's been that's been a big portion of setting up hybrid work is not only it has to work, but it has to be simple to continue to, uh, to operate, to maintain, to set up, to replace, or you're going to have downtime and people aren't going to have access to what they need. Your first comment about like for anyone who's set up a router, here's here's what's interesting about it, right? Is that that process is actually so painful. 90% of people, I think, don't do it because... For most people who have not cut the cord, there's a bill, there's a line item on your cable bill that is you are renting the router provided to you by the cable company. It's usually like nine bucks. Sometimes it's like 15, I guess, depending where you live. It's every single month and they never stop charging you. The only way to stop that charge, of course, is to get your own router, call them up, get it set up. You're absolutely right. It's such a pain. I'm 90 plus percent of people will not do it. Even, even if you get it set up, like even if you get it turned on and you get your Netflix working, you are not turning on security features, the monitoring features. Like, like I, I don't even do that. I, I run a Meraki solution at home, but before, before I ran the Meraki solution at home, like I knew that I was terribly, terribly vulnerable. I had no protections. I had nothing turned on. And I was like, well, my, who cares about my data is what I would think as an operator. But like, as soon as I'm moving the company data, I'm like, well, it's not my problem. It's company's problem. So it, the company really has to solve that, especially if I'm if I'm moving, you know, precious company information around. It's on the burden is on that team to make sure that I, as a remote operator, am doing everything right for the company because I I don't have the sense of responsibility or even the ability to do that on my own. <laughs> no, I like the way you frame that up. And the question I want to ask you is, you know, we've. Obviously, we've shifted quite a bit in the last two years of how work environments are working. So are these like end-to-end solutions now in more – I'm assuming they're in more demand. Are people still willing to piecemeal or do like people leaning towards, hey, I just want it simple because kind of like uh, what you just described earlier, which is the complication that my in work environment might be set up or the complication, the complexity of whereby people might be is just – I guess too open-ended, like it's hard for even someone who's in resources and staffing and planning really to even, you know, forecast like where their, their next worker is going to come from now. It could, you could come from anywhere. So now it's like, it's easier just to have an all-in solution so that I can, if I hire someone in Alaska, I can drop them there's their toolkit. If I hire someone in India, I can drop them their toolkit. If I hire somebody in Mexico, I can drop them their tools to just close the network, be secured. It's like, is there, are you starting to see more people sway to this all-in-one solution or people still, hey, I want to build my own thing? Yeah, the all-in-one is getting really popular. And it's because, well, you're trying to solve two problems and you're trying to solve it, as you said, across the globe in every, in every circumstance. The first thing you're trying to solve is 
you're trying to make sure that they have a that every user has a consistent experience no matter where in your network topology they are if they're on the very edge or if they're traveling or if they're at home versus if they're in the office you don't want them to have to take different actions in order to access their work you want them focused on doing their job like fulfilling their mission like trying to get their work done and so that consistency means a lot of the times having the same solution go you know from core all the way to edge all the way to fully remote and the other thing you're trying to solve is you're trying to provide that experience with a smaller and smaller IT team with a smaller and smaller budget with a geographically dispersed support team so the more data that is in the solution that you get all of the info points it's aggregated together it's finding the problems for you the more ground and the more people you're covering with a smaller team. This has been Meraki's play forever, has been the, look, it's, it's simple. You can have a smaller, leaner IT team. They don't need specialized knowledge. They don't need a ton of certificates. It's gonna be easy. Now that's more important than ever because the number of situations that they're covering and frankly, the plethora of devices that they're trying to cover from a connected standpoint and secure is just ballooning. So trying to keep it all in one solution is very popular. Trying to keep it all in one stack with the data aggregation. Like you said, a lot of companies will offer APIs to connect to other solutions unless they're teeing that up and doing it for you. That's a huge pay, right? <laughs> like, you know, there's there's a ton of power in APIs. I could go on for a long time about like the power of Meraki's APIs and what we're enabling, but there are a huge segment of functions and customers who do not want to think about how it just works on a daily basis. If they want to touch APIs, it's for a special sauce engagement where they want to build their own analysis or something on top of it. But the, the core function, the security, especially the monitoring and the health, they don't want to have to build that from scratch. They want something that they know works and that a, and a stack that they can really secure end to end. And you know that's what you get in something like the Cisco Meraki solution. You know, I know exactly what you're talking about because we at on mission side we hit two of the things that you mentioned. Right, the first one is remote workforce, huge data files. We're in media and entertainment. We can only we've interviewed CIOs from like Fox Entertainment. NBC, Universal, you know, the amount of data they're creating that is all fully remote, that they're interoperable working on, like exactly what you said, like you just need your networking systems to work because otherwise it's ridiculous if, you know, if I'm editing a, a video file with someone around the globe, like, of course, it's got to be secured. You know, the other thing that you mentioned before is this whole idea of customizable. I always think to people who are operating smaller shops, even bigger shops, really, but for specifically for smaller shops, replace the word customize or API with maintenance fee. It's like, oh, this has maintenance fees. Like, oh, <laughs> and, and that'll forever change the way you shop software. It's like, oh, whenever, just, just replace the word customizable with maintenance fee. And you'll start thinking to yourself, oh, okay, when something happens, Whose duty is that to fix it? Oh, it's my duty. That's a pain. Across over 300 episodes of IT Visionaries, I believe you were the first person with this dual role. Uh, on your LinkedIn, you were VP of engineering and you're in charge of the supply chain. Like you're in charge of the hardware supply chain at Meraki. Is that right? It's one of the artifacts of coming out of being a startup. And the Meraki hardware group runs on a joint development model, a JDM model. So we work with a lot of teams that are outside. 
from a design perspective, from a manufacturing perspective. And that means that whatever engineering team you have that's coordinating, you know, the physical design of the product, production of the product, the selection of components, like they are hand in hand through their entire product life cycle with the manufacturing team, with the fulfillment team, with the returns team, with debugging. When you separate those teams into separate silos, things fall apart. Like you start to make decisions. And I think one of the key things to know about you know, my role in supply chain is I don't own all of supply chain. There's a operations team at Meraki that handles customer facing logistics. Everything that, that faces the customer, like there's an ops team that looks more like a traditional operations organization to handle that. But we've drawn a very careful line where like as soon as it's in the building, it comes back into the, you know, the warm waiting embrace of the engineering team that originally produced it. One of the things that you know, my joint team does is we maintain records, specific records of every product's life cycle from birth to operation to return to you know, refurb. And like we, I can go look at that. And the fact that I have it end to end means that there's never going to be a hole for the customer in understanding well, what happened with my units, you know, what am I getting from a replacement? And when you combine that with this, the cloud data that we do and the cloud data that we collect around a device and its telemetry over time, I have a pretty rigorous life story. I can write the biography of every single unit. If you separate the two functions, you start to lose some of that, or you build a lot of glue in order to get it back. So it's a weird role. I spend more of my time arbitrating conflict between the engineering motivations and supply chain motivations to keep them in balance than I spend like thinking about engineering or thinking about pure supply chain, but that's okay. Like I have very good people who work in one silo or the other under me. So like, is it a silo for them? I sure hope not. We're all in the same team meetings and there's one leader you know, it would work without me. It would work without the roles, but the connections would have been hard to make without this growing up. So, you know, if we ever do fully separate them as they replace themselves and as they hire, they're going to have to be very intentional about creating some of the same linkages. If you look at the, the bigger Cisco organization, you know, the central Cisco organization, they have all of those linkages, but they've They've fought for them over time, you know, over a 20, 30 year history. They've managed to do basically what I do under one title with these two humongous groups. So the title is novel, but I think the functionality is how big successful companies work and how those leaders have to have to work together. You've been firsthand witness to this um, over the last two years, how difficult it has been to make your products. One of the things I wanted to also hit on is what you just talked about earlier, this joint development model that you have. We've seen or read different companies that are very, very tightly integrated with their parts manufacturers and suppliers, and it's always designed to make a better experience for the consumer. The companies that tend to go to like lowest bidder parts, consumers ultimately feel that at the end where like there's points of failure. When a, when a car fails, for example, people never say, oh, well, that part failed. No, no. They just think the car failed. They don't ever think, ah, well, the supplier of the, the bolt here is not, a, not doing a good job. They just assume the car is failing. How close are you in that development process? You mentioned that you're tightly integrated with your suppliers and your vendors that are partnered with you. Like, are you guys constantly engineering, 
passing specs, doing dev tests, like in, in like they have to engineer the specs so that you can accept it into your product. Give us an idea of how tightly woven that is. Since the beginning, I have never thought, and Meraki has never treated these vendors like a, contra- a contract relationship. It starts as a temporary team for one project. We interview all of the members that they're going to put on the team. And of course, like interview, they're already part of that team, but we make sure that they're going to fit well within our model. For each of the major functions, we embed one of our engineers or we embed one of our leaders to co-lead. I don't say they'll take over the team, but like to co-lead with their leader. And before the pandemic, that meant a lot of travel. We had a lot of folks who would literally sit with those teams and work. Some language barrier, but frankly, like engineers speak engineer, doesn't matter what their their actual language is. (laughs) Math is math, right? (laughs) Math is math. Whiteboard is whiteboard. That means that you, so you're telling me across all nations, engineers draw on squigglies to the point where you cannot read a whiteboard. Is that true? Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we've, we've traded on that relationship over the, over the pandemic. It's been challenging, but what's core to the success is we work with the same group or team, the people shift in and out, but like we build a team at each one of our vendors and then we work with them over and over again. And and the nice thing about that is like, well, when I don't have a project for them, somebody else does. So I don't have to lay off anybody, you know, their business falls and wanes. But when I have projects, I can trust that there's several different vendors I can go to and find like the right team for the right project. And that means the right people for the right project. So it's just a really versatile tool for managing headcount and resources. But I, like you said, if, if a component fails, whose responsibility is it? It's my responsibility. So I have to trust. And so all of those relationships are based on relationships and trust and both of us making money. Obviously, I have to pay those companies. They have to make some profit. I, so I have to share some of the profit. If I were to go to like a more traditional manufacturing model, maybe I could make a little bit more profit, but I'd also have a ton of headaches that they catch for me. So I really appreciate the jointness of the model. Like One of the key hiring criteria for my team is, are you going to be able to parachute into these relationships, establish yourself as a friend, as a peer, if you're the kind of person who shows up and it's just like a jerk to a vendor, like you're not going to cut it because you're going to do damage to our model. That's a, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to hire. It's a lot easier to teach when you can actually get people on the ground eye to eye with, uh, with these teams. So it's been, it's been a real challenge uh, over the last couple of years to make sure that we don't lose that part of our, of our soul. It, it speaks to human nature. It speaks to how people want to work with each other. So it's been, it's been really successful for us. And I, and I do like that. If you as a consumer sit back and follow some of the top companies that are known for quality products, quality as defined by my favorite characteristics of products, how long they last, <laughs> you'll find that most of these companies are very tightly integrated supply chains. They're constantly, like you said, a joint development model, almost to the point where some of the products and, you know, they're, they're almost custom built for the, for the buyer, uh, which is really cool to hear that you're, you're putting engineers that close to the, that close to the problem. You mentioned before, like it's a, a bit of a challenge. Has, is it something that you figured out how to like identify? Because this is something that a lot of 
I would say people in engineering, a lot of guests on our show talk about is like identifying people who have the engineering skills, as well as like you mentioned, the managerial skills, the relationship skills, maybe the sales skills to like work together in these environments. Have you developed a good test or hiring criteria? How do you find these people? I mean, you're right in that it's tough. I think in, in Silicon Valley, like you said, there are other companies that have this model. So it's always helpful to you know find someone who's worked in it and then in the interview, you kind of test, like, what did you like about the model and what did you not like about the model? And if they like the parts of the model that are lead to the strengths, like, if like I love working with the people. I love the team. I had like I had so many great ragers with my team out in Asia, you know, like, OK, well, that's a good sign. You know, if they express a lot of frustration about not being able to, like, rigidly manage that team or like they didn't feel that they could drive accountability remotely you know that there's some gap there and you're going to have to do some investment, some training to get it going. What you're going to see is you're going to see that there's like a generation of digital natives or whatever you want to call them that have worked on teams that are remote, who know how to use chat. They grew up communicating with PowerPoint slides. I mean, I'm probably dating myself at this point. Like they communicate with slides. They know how to send things to each other. They know how to draw. Those teams are really good at remote work of any kind. And they're also really good at working with a very diverse team, whether that's geography or whether that's culture, like they know how to take a step back and establish the rules of a relationship because they've been establishing remote relationships or distant relationships their whole lives. They smooth right into it. And there it's a lot easier. You try and figure out how to solve for, how do you take friendly and add engineering to it? is a lot easier to solve than how do you take engineering and add friendly to it? I've seen it develop fine from both sides. The key is to make sure that you're giving people good feedback. And you know that feedback is like, sometimes people come back and they say, I'm working with this team. I'm not getting it done. Like they're terrible. And you have to really put them in front of the mirror and say like, well, are they jerks or are you the jerk? How did you get, how did you get to where you are? Like if they don't, if they don't want to play with you, what happened, you know? And a lot of the times you'll find that like, if they take a real hard look in that mirror, they'll say, well, I, I could have been a better partner. I was so focused on getting my work done, getting my project done that I burnt, I burned some fields behind me. And you're like, well, it's time to replant. Like you need to get back there and you need to repair that relationship. And that's, I'll say relationship over and over again. It really is about that ability to build and maintain. And, you know, every, every project is going to cost a little, like every transaction with your friend, with your friends, like there's give and there's take. And that's the key. It can't be all take. Some companies, especially the bigger you get, and I'm seeing this as Cisco Meraki grows, like the bigger you get, the easier it is to take, 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 take. And then you suddenly you realize your friends aren't your friends. These companies don't want to work with you anymore, or they're very transactional and you've, you've lost the magic, right? So that is the big risk. That has a lot more to do with like the, the company size and the greed of the organization rather than any individual. But you have to provide the individuals with the opportunity to not always fight for the man. They have to be able to work one-to-one, human-to-human with those teams. Yeah. You got to think the way you described it, where you directly benefit from your partner's innovation. So there's no point in beating them up over it. You need them to innovate. You need yourselves to innovate. You need to work together towards a common goal. You know, and that brings us to the next part I wanted to ask you about, because 
we're like a network on demand, network as a service almost tool uh, that allowed people to spin up cloud locations, routers, network connect connectivity on demand. That's what I sold in the past. So I understand this domain a little bit. A lot of people would ask me or they'd be like, well, what, what else is there in the future besides more capacity, faster pipes? Like there's nothing else. There's no other innovations happening. But, but as someone who lives and breathes this in the networking space, where do you see the next five years of innovation? Because whether it's SD-WAN, WAN, you have it listed on your website, IoT implementations, like the reality is you and I know more people are going to need more from their network. That's a fact. Where do you see innovations coming from and what domains are you most excited about? You know, intelligence is the watchword. Intelligence is what we think about. And when I say intelligence, I split it into two, two big groups for our developing customer base. One is edge intelligence. And that comes from things like the cameras, the sensors, the health algorithms that are running on your access points or you know, agents that are running on your laptops and, and tablets and everything. You know, understanding what's happening, not only in your data environment, but in your physical environment, in the customers, their mobility, where they are, how they're interacting. Like that intelligence is hard to gather. And then it's really hard to do anything with. So that's, I think that's going to be one of the big investments is, you know, bringing more types of intelligence to the table and then processing it and presenting it to, you know, the end customer in an actionable way. So it's using intelligence to create insights, providing tools to take action against those insights at the edge. The flip side of intelligence is like, well, you think about your network and then you think about how distributed you know, your apps are, you know, you use things in the cloud, you use so much of the network that isn't yours anymore. It's not all about what's your building or your campus. You're so dependent on the broader world and you control none of that. You pay for it. You have an SLA, but you don't know what's going on. And you need the intelligence. You need to understand what's happening across the world, across all those pipes. And this is where like Cisco Meraki gets a huge benefit from central Cisco. They have so much involvement in the big, broad, worldwide internet, understanding which pipes are congested, how things are moving, what attacks are happening at any given time, that you can take that intelligence, which you don't own. And frankly, like you are, you are not entitled to, you know, you're not paying for it in any way. Cisco helps you get a, access to it and then you get a benefit from it. So when you're at your point of sale retail shop and your credit card processing isn't happening, you need to know, is it my problem? Is it the mall's problem? Is it- Is the bank's problem? Yeah, bank's problem. Is it the county's <laughs> problem? Is my, you know, my AWS down? Like what in the world is going on? And traditionally you have access to 25% of that information. And then you're on the phone with some rando service person somewhere to try and figure out the rest. And it takes days to figure it out. You know, the intelligence all the way from the edge, all the way back to the, I'm not even going to call it the core, like, you know, the center of the earth, intelligence back to the center of the networking earth. That is what's going to be key to the next set of operations, because it's, you need all of that in order to, you know, assure any individual operator, any individual task is working end to end with 
you're actually going to be have access to both ends of it. That's going to be amazing. And the kind of insights you'll get from having all that data together conglomerated into one platform is going to be really fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be pretty insane. The other thing that's going to happen, in my opinion, that is going to further accelerate your need to figure out intelligence at the edge is as these capacities, so let's just call it like, you know, bandwidth, data, security, as that opens up, what's going to happen also is the application developers themselves, they're going to take advantage of it, right? They're going to be able to create more video content, more digitized content. So like everything's going to be submitted in higher resolution. Uh, We were talking about this just not too long ago. You know, two years ago, the whole idea of recording your screen to send somebody like a how-to on how to do something, that was not an option. You would never consider doing that because the file size would be too big. Uploading it to your peer would be ridiculous. They'd have to download it. It was not a process. Now we're more than willing to get on live streams. We're more than willing to create media assets to be sent. You know, me sending to you a, a you know a video of how I did something. That's happening more often than ever. And what's going to happen is there's going to be more applications that are going to take advantage of this compute power at the edge. So further going to require you to <laughs> open these pipes up. You know, I think about like, like think of like, let's use Amazon. Everyone recognizes this. What does Amazon do now? They take a photo when they drop off your package. Well, think how many photos they're creating a day, just sending those up. It's soon going to be video. And then it's going to get to the point where like porch pirates, you know, people don't want porch pirates. So they're going to create probably like lock boxes when they'll videotape themselves, putting your packages in the lockbox, setting the codes, sending it to you. The amount of data at different endpoints is going to be just astronomical, really. So, yeah, you're going to end up figure out what to, how to move it. Yeah. One of the things that I'll point out there is that you also have to segment the entire world by availability to that bandwidth and the functions. And over time, like, you know, when you think about like the first billion people on the network, like bandwidth and applications have kind of kept track with each other. So we have no problem using every functionality, sending every video, making that. But now that the, the innovation, like hybrid work has gone worldwide, the innovations, the, you know, what, what do you want to call it? Billion two to billion six in there. Like they all want access to all of this. And that's where the bandwidth isn't going to keep up. So that's where, you know, pushing intelligence and action closer to the edge, like not relying on the, the global pipe, you know, even just looking at infrastructure in the United States, like there's certainly a digital divide and, it's a big goal to make sure that we don't only innovate on the privileged side of that divide. Like we have to push all of this functionality as quickly as possible to full availability and democratization of the functionality and the data, keeping things intelligence central and intelligence edge, and especially moving insights and actions to the edge so it's not reliant on the pipe. And this is a weird thing for a cloud company guy to say, right? Like I'm like, do you want it? Do you want all of your data in the cloud? And the answer is, well, eventually, but I don't want all of my action. I don't want to be limited by that. I want to be able to take insight and action at the edge because being able to do it at the edge is how we're going to make sure it gets out to the, like, the next six, the next seven billion. That's a big part of the mission there. Yeah. And for those of you listening that you might not have picked up on what Morgan was just saying, other IT or networking professionals that have been on the show have talked about how there's still quite a bit of greenfield left 
when it comes to just the internet. The internet is not accessed by everybody. Like there's a mind, when you say that to people, people are like, oh, I can't believe it. And uh, I, I saw a stat, like there's something like over 20 million households in the United States are estimated to not have internet. I think it's, the number's actually probably bigger than that. Is it, do you have a number on that one? Do you know off the top of your head? I don't, I don't know what's the number without internet, but certainly the number in the United States that don't have like full speed, broadband, high end streaming access in both directions is very high. Until three months ago, I worked for Cisco Meraki. I was still running on a DSL connection in my home. Yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, you know, when you, when you have, well, have 1.8 megabits, I had a 1.8 megabit connection in my house and like, I buffered Netflix. I buffered for five minutes before I could watch something. And like cable was not available in my, you know, fiber wasn't available in my neighborhood. It still isn't. You know, I'm, I finally moved it to cable very recently, but like, you know, there's a lot of functionality that I wasn't taking advantage of. And there are a lot of people who are in the same boat. And there are a lot of businesses that are in the same boat. So it's a combination of folks who don't use it folks who don't have access to it, folks that have access, but you know they have a very limited access and they've built their lives around it. I built the way that I work, I use my home network around the access that I had. That's an, an, an unfair advantage for one business to you know build their business around no or limited access and another to build you know around incredible access. And it's, it could be by neighborhood, it can be by block, the difference. So over, overcoming that, like you said, there's a ton of green field left and there's, and there's a ton of brown field that needs to be watered and made green again. You know, there's a lot of technology that needs to get back out there. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah. I think about one of my good buddies, he moved to, he moved to a town that was basically in Montana that didn't have updated modern infrastructure, but so many tech workers were descending upon it. Like the town had, like you mentioned the county earlier, right? the town had to make a call and the local cable company had to make a call and like, yo, we have to link up these homes. Otherwise our growth will stop because these people will stop choosing to come here because they can't, they can't do what you're saying. You know, super fascinating stuff. Morgan, it was awesome having you on IT Visionaries, but before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Morgan, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience could get to know you a little better. You ready? Yeah, absolutely. All right. For those listening and not watching the YouTube, Morgan has a shark's jaw over his shoulder. Tell us, why do you have that? <laughs> My dad bought it for me. Uh, he's a... Uh... <laughs> He, he was a biologist and he studied insects, but it's really hard to buy insects. So he bought me a shark jaw. <laughs> it looks pretty cool, man. So we noticed you had Master and Dynamic headphones on earlier. Are you an audiophile? Like most of the time, people that like Master and Dynamic really love great sound. Actually, there's a good story on that. A few years ago, Meraki was working on the MC product line. So it comes back to work, but we were working on phones. We were doing conference room phones. You know, it was like a, a tablet phone, really fantastic, high audio phones. Now, it didn't work out for us as a business, in part because we went a little too premium. But as part of that testing, I had to buy really nice headphones to make sure that everything was working very nicely inside those phone systems. So although the product line didn't work out, these master and dynamics, they, they keep on going and they are fantastic. I love them. <laughs> they, fought, they fit my very, my, like I said, earlier definition of quality, they last forever. That's fantastic. When you're not working, what do you like to do for fun? 
I have kids. And so I spend a lot of time shuffling them to their activities. I enjoy that. I think watching them experience networks, connections, the sports that they do, and the way that they communicate with their, their colleagues in a different way. I really enjoy that. When I'm not shuffling them around, I'm working around the house. I'm a DIYer when it comes to, you know, fixing stuff, fixing stuff around the house. So I grew up as a DIYer. And like, it's always a challenge now. Do I do it or do I pay somebody to do it? Because like you have the option. I try to only do the, part, the parts that bring me joy. But yeah, sometimes you just do it because it, it's got to get done. So I do spend quite a bit of time patching things up or modding things around the house. That is awesome. I'm a dad myself. My kids are 13, nine, and six. How about you? About eight and about 11. It's, uh, they're fun ages. I'm worried about that teenage transition for the, the 11-year-old. Yeah, that's good. You know, I'm going through myself, my 13-year-old, but I do know exactly what you're talking about in regards to like the shuffling around. That's the one thing when you're younger, you probably don't think about, but when you're a parent, you learn firsthand, like you are, you're your own logistics coordinator, but at least it sounds like you got that, you know, you got that man-to-man coverage with the, uh, with the mom at home and help you guys out. <laughs> yeah. You get an odd number in there. Yeah. Now, now things get crazy. Oh yeah. We're not, we're not outnumbered. Thank goodness. And they're back in the classroom, which is really fantastic. I have to say like having them home and doing home learning was fantastic in its own way, but it was different. My second grader is kind of a, bar- a barbarian. Like she's back in the, she's back in the classroom, but like there are a lot of learn from home behaviors that we're having to untrain back in the classroom. So yeah, it's, it's, it's probably tougher on her teacher now than it is on me, but it's, it's real interesting to see, see the transition and, you know, see how they interact with, with tech as well. It's just been super, super crazy to see it over time. When it comes to the home DIY projects, you mentioned before you like the ones that, you know, you kind of pick and choose a little bit. What's something that you're like more proud of? Like, hey, I did that. Like, what's a project you did that you're like, man, that was a good one. So I've done uh, full bathroom remodels. Holy cow, man. Hey, man, I got big, hey, big respect. That is a big job, man. I've, I've installed a sinkerator. That's about it. Like, I'm not a remodel a bathroom. Like, that's, that's significant. My, my goal is to have done a project once. And then after you've done it once, you can say, well, I either enjoyed it, I'll do it again when it comes up, or like, oh man, that was rough. I'll pay somebody next time. And like, so I've done the full bathroom remodel. You know, it it went well, it was hard. I wasted money, I wasted tile, I wasted parts, (laughs) you know? I bought tools I'll never use again, but like I did it and it was years ago at this point, you know, and it stood the test of time. Like it hasn't fallen apart. The floor didn't rot out. So I'm really proud of that one, but I'm not doing it again. You know, I'm not doing it again. Next time I need a bathroom <laughs> remodel, I'll, I'll find some, I'll find a, a pro to do that. And I do, I do that a lot. Like I've done wood floor in the past, but I just did wood floor in the house. And like, I'm not doing that myself again. Let it go. You know, so what I do now, now that I've, I've done quite a bit over the years, what I do now is I do small stuff. I'll, uh, switch out the outlets. I'll move a dimmer. I'll patch up some drywall with kids around. I mostly fix things that they break. There you go. You're going to be busy for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to be busy for a while as your kids go teenager. Uh, you know, they're bound to do something dumb. 
I know, I know when I was playing football in high school, me and my friends, I don't know why we started a game of tackle football <laughs> at my friend's house and I'm over 200 pounds. My friend's over 200 pounds. He sent me right through the drywall. So when your kids do that for you, you'll be on the, you'll be on the job right there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Morgan, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your life and also what you're up to at Cisco Meraki. You're working in one of those industries that I personally have an affinity for because I've been from it. It's it's one that people don't really want to think about, but it's because for the most part, as far as I know, it's always working. But it's also one of those things where if it's not working, man, everybody complains. And it's funny. No one really knows how to fix it either. They just look around. Watch. Anyone who's worked in an office knows that when the internet goes out, people just start staring at each other. They go, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, tried and true, turn it off and turn it on again. That still works. 90% of the time, don't return your gear until you turn it off and turn it back on again. Life lessons from Morgan Teachworth. Morgan, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thank you. Thank you.